So, um, you know, it's the beginning of the semester. It's uh, kind of a weird beginning of the semester for sure. But one of the things that happens at the beginning of the school year, and for a lot of y'all, the beginning of your college experience, is the opportunity for first impressions. The opportunity to make a good first impression. And of course, one of the first things that anybody learns about you typically is your name. That's always been a challenge for me when it comes to first impressions, uh, because I've got a name uh, that's, that's really kind of a strange name, isn't it? Um, Twit. There's two good advantages to my last name, though. Um, the first is I always knew that if anybody took my name, that she must really love me. So I've always, I've always uh, you know, derived, I guess, some comfort from that, that even if I was burdened with a name like Twit, and, um, you know, at least if, if I ever got married, I would know that she must really love me or um, be half crazy, probably both. Um, the other thing that I've kind of consoled myself over the years with my last name is uh, that it could have been worse. Yeah, it really could have been worse. So my father um, was almost named Weir Twit, W-E-I-R. It's a Norwegian name. Um, his mother, my grandmother, is named Javerna. Her maiden name was Berkestrand. So she was Javerna Berkestrand. So I guess Weir Twit didn't seem like such a strange name to her. But, um, you know, he was born in a farmhouse in Iowa. Fortunately, it was a little small town, and the doctor knew her very well. And when she had my father there at the farmhouse, and he said, uh, Javerna, what name do you want to give this child? What should I put on the birth certificate? She said, I want to name him Weir. And he looked at her and said, Javerna, I'm not doing that to that kid. Pick another name. So he became Kenneth. And then because his name was Kenneth and my mom's name was Kay, they realized when they got married that they both were KJTs. And so they named us all KJTs as well. And I avoided being named Weir Twit which was my grandmother Twit's uh, brother's name. So um, it could have been worse, right? Names matter. First impressions matter. Um, and when we come to this story tonight in John chapter 2, if you have a Bible, turn to John's Gospel uh, chapter 2, um, we see the kinds of first impression that Jesus makes. And I got to tell you, it's a strange first impression. I don't know how many of y'all are um, marketing majors or music business marketing emphasis. Um, when you read this story, you might think that Jesus could have used some brand management because uh, the story, the way he begins his public ministry, the first public miracle that he does is a strange way to start and a strange way to make a first impression. But John's gospel says... In this story, he reveals his glory. So let's read John chapter 2. Follow along. I'm going to start with verse 1. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. That's Jesus' hometown, basically. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Dear woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, my time has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. 
Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. This, the first of his miraculous signs, Jesus performed at Cana in Galilee. He thus revealed his glory, and his disciples put their faith in him. Revealed his glory. In what way? That's what we're going to talk about tonight. But first, let's pray. Lord, we do thank you that not only did you came, but that you came and you revealed your glory, that your disciples and all of us might put our faith in you. And we pray, Lord, that even through the foolishness of preaching and through virtual technology, that you would do that again tonight, that you would reveal your glory. We need to see your glory. In Jesus' name we ask this. Amen. So, as I said, it's a strange story. If you were inventing a story about an impressive hero, I don't think this is the kind of story that you would start with. If you were inventing a gospel, if you were wanting to say, this Jesus is the one who brings hope and joy to a broken, hurting world, I don't know if this is the way you would begin your story. But this is the way Jesus chooses to declare who he is and reveal his glory. In this series this semester, we're going to focus actually on some of the strange things that Jesus does because it's the strange things that are often the most powerful pictures of who he is and what he came to do. And that's what we see in this passage. It's actually not a very impressive miracle, and it's not even very public. Honestly, what the text says, the only people that really know what's happened are the servants and his mother, neither of whom would really be the kinds of people you would want representing you or giving testimony to you. In this day and age, in this culture, women weren't even allowed to give testimony in a court of law. And nobody would care what the servants had to say. But Jesus begins by revealing his glory to a woman and to some servants, male, female, we don't actually know. So it's not really that public. It's in a small town of no importance. It's not in Jerusalem. It's not in Rome. It's in this little backwater. Eugene Peterson says um, at, at one point in a sermon uh, that I heard years ago that we've done archaeological excavations there in Cana and Galilee, and the two main things that we found 
are fish hooks and coins. It's just a normal town with a market and with fishermen. <laughs> fish hooks and coins. There's nothing actually really very impressive. So it's not an impressive place. It is at a wedding, and weddings were a big deal, a big social event. But when you look at this miracle and, and you try to kind of step back for a second, because I'm sure you've probably all heard stories about or sermons about this miracle, but just back up for a second and, and look at what's actually going on. Jesus does a miracle to save the master of the banquet and thus the bridegroom from social embarrassment. Now, it, it's helpful to know who this guy, this master of the banquet is. The master of the banquet was kind of like an MC and a caterer all in one. So he was the master of ceremonies, but he also was in charge of making sure that the food, you know, was coming along and all that kind of stuff was working out well. And weddings in this day and age took place over multiple days and would probably involve almost everyone in the community, okay? And this guy is in charge of all this stuff, and they run out of wine really quickly. And the master of the banquet's kind of freaking out. He asks, I guess, it's interesting to speculate why Mary finds out. Perhaps the people getting married were related to her. Um, for some reason, she finds out about it, and she comes to Jesus and asks him to help. Now, here's one thing I do want to say before we get past this too quick. In, in one level, this is a small town. He doesn't really reveal himself to the movers and the shakers, but to his mother and the servants. But weddings are actually a very good place for his first miracle. We read, as our call to worship, that passage from Isaiah 25. And there is a long history of the Jewish people looking forward to a kind of salvation and deliverance that wouldn't just be an escape from this world, but a consummation of living in a land flowing with milk and honey and a wedding feast to which no other wedding feast could ever be compared. So the idea of a wedding being the place that he picks to do his first miracle is actually appropriate if you know the full context of the story. The story of Jesus does not come out of the blue. It is the fulfillment of all the hopes and expectations that God had been building in his people Israel for thousands of years, okay? And here's the thing. God created weddings to teach us about his love. I always say this when I do a wedding. You know, weddings are a signpost that God created to teach us about his love. That's good news for those of us who aren't married and want to be married. That even if you're not married, it doesn't mean that you're missing out on the best stuff. Because the weddings, even a good wedding, is a signpost pointed to something even better. It's also good news for those who are married and have found it not everything they hoped it would be. And in some ways, that's everyone who's married. I just got to tell you. And it's good news to know that weddings are not heaven. Weddings are not the new heavens and the new earth, but they point to 
the love of God and the full consummation of that when we will eat and feast with him, right? So that's the first thing. It's a strange first impression. It's not a very impressive miracle. It's not very public. He basically does it to keep the party going. And for some people, like the fact that Jesus makes wine to keep the party going is a bit of a challenge. Uh, Particularly if we've been raised in a kind of context where Christianity is seen as a a way to stop people from having fun. Um, You know, I, I think that a lot of people, unfortunately, have been burdened with that. It doesn't actually fit the picture that we get in the Bible of what Jesus talks about when he talks about the kingdom of God. You know, Jesus actually says the kingdom of God is like a great party in one of his parables. And I've often thought, geez, uh, Jesus, you know, are you really want to make that comparison? Because, you know, most Christians I know, you would never get the impression that they think life with Jesus is a great party. As a matter of fact, Nietzsche, you know, said one time that, you know, if you Christians want me to believe in your God, you need to throw better parties. I think that's true. Um, I do think there's unfortunately a strong element that's come down through Christian churches that's not in the Bible that says the more holy you are, the more miserable you'll be. It really is. And that if you're enjoying something, that you should probably feel bad about that because it's probably sinful. There's a long history of that. As a matter of fact, St. Augustine, who had a lot of really helpful things to say, uh, I mentioned, I quoted him last week. He lived, he died in 430. Um, he actually taught this, that sex was uh, necessary for the propagation of the race, but if you enjoy it, it's sin. So there's a long history of people with kind of some screwed up ideas about pleasure. In 1 Timothy chapter 4, you can go look at this later, Paul says it's a doctrine of demons to teach people to abstain from marriage and certain foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving. Because everything God has made is good. And he says to Timothy, who's kind of like his his protege, if you point this out, the goodness of creation, if you point this out, Timothy, you're a good minister of Christ Jesus. It's a doctrine of demons to teach people that they shouldn't enjoy the gifts that God has given. And so it shouldn't surprise us that Jesus makes good wine to keep a party going. He does. That might challenge for some of you your idea of Jesus. Like maybe your idea of Jesus is he's always worried that things are kind of going to get a little out of control. But this Jesus here creates nice, good wine to keep the party going. All right. Well, let's look at his mother, because this is really fascinating. She comes to him and she says they have no wine. They've run out of wine. His response is strange. Now, I have to tell you, most English translations just don't have the guts to translate this the way it is in the Greek. In the Greek, it does not say, dear woman. It simply says, woman. But almost every translation, just they just don't want to sell Bibles that make it seem like Jesus is rude to his mother. But he says, woman, why are you bothering me? 
My hour has not yet come. It's not quite rude, but it is somewhat startling. This is how Jesus talks to his mother? Now, to understand what's going on here, think about it this way. From what we can tell at this point, Joseph has either divorced Mary. We don't think that's likely because he didn't divorce her when it would have been convenient when he found out she was pregnant. Um, So most likely he's died. Joseph is gone from the picture. We don't know what happened, but we assume that he died. Jesus is her firstborn son. In this culture, he would be the one to take care of things on behalf of the family, okay? So it should be natural for us to think of Mary when she finds out there's a problem, looking to her firstborn son for help. Jesus does not respond to her the way he responds because it was inappropriate for her to ask him to help with something that seems somewhat trivial. And there's actually an important point for us in that, right? Sometimes I think we don't feel like we can bring trivial things about our physical needs and worries to Jesus, that we just can really only talk to him about important spiritual kinds of things. That's not true. He does not rebuke her for bringing a need to him. And the reason you know that is even though he says, woman, why are you bothering me? He does what she wants anyway. He does what she wants. He responds to the quest and does it. So his response is not because it was inappropriate for her to ask or it was something that, you know, she, she shouldn't have, have, have wanted him to do. No, he does it anyway. But Mary understands what's going on. And here's what's going on. As Jesus commences his public ministry, she needs to move from being his mother to being his disciple. She comes to him as his mother saying, son, will you help? But his response which is a mild rebuke, says to her, from now on, from now on, I'm not at your beck and call. Jesus is not at our beck and call. He's not God on a leash to do whatever we want. We can ask him, but we also must ask in a posture of submitting to what he wants to do. And that's what Mary gets, right? Look at her, what she says to the servants. When he says, woman, why are you bothering me? My time is not yet. My hour is not yet. She says to the servants, do whatever he tells you. She gets it. She understands. From now on, I must submit to him and to what he wants to do. So why do we think that he answers her so abruptly? I think the best way to understand it is, He's got something else on his mind. My wife would tell you that she has this experience with me all the time. She's always asking me questions that kind of break me out of whatever it is I'm doing, whether it's on my phone or whether I'm just thinking about something. And often, like, it'll be three sentences into what she's saying before I register that she's talking to me. And then I sometimes, this is what really makes her mad, and rightly so, sometimes I'll say, sure. And I didn't even hear the question. That doesn't go well. Um, Sometimes I'll say, whoa, whoa, hold on. Can you start over? Now I realize it's registering that you're asking me a question and I I missed it. So my brain's too slow to kind of catch up. Um, 
I think that's the picture we have here. And why do, we, why do I think that? Because of what he says. Like nobody asks him about his hour. When, when he says that, it's revealing what he's thinking about. You might even say he's brooding over something. He seems distracted. He's in the middle of this wedding feast, dancing, celebrating, drinking, eating, all this going on. She comes over and talks to him, and he's like, woman, why are you bothering me? My hour is not yet come. Now, that's an important word. Many of the translations say, my time is not yet come. But in the Greek, it literally says, my hour. And that's a very important word in the Gospel of John. Jesus refers to his hour several times in the Gospel. When you get to the end of the gospel, like in John 17, Jesus says, my hour has now come. And you realize what he's talking about is his crucifixion. In John's gospel, when Jesus says, my hour, he's always, every time, referring to his crucifixion. So here's the picture of what's going on. Jesus is sitting in the midst of all this celebration, thinking about his crucifixion. And we know that because the way he responds to her, my hour has not yet come. He's thinking about his hour. He's thinking about his death. Why? Well, I don't know how many of you have been to weddings, particularly since you've been of like dating age. You know, I didn't get married till I was 30, so I went to a lot of weddings as a single person. And even guys, though I know probably more so girls, but even guys, when you're a single person, particularly if you go with a date to a wedding, you are thinking about your own wedding. And I, I just, I tell people all the time, if you take a date to a wedding, like be prepared for the emotional roller coaster, because inevitably you start thinking about your wedding and you start projecting this person that I'm with Huh, I wonder, right? It's only natural. Jesus is 30 years old, a single man at a wedding, and he's thinking about his death. And he's well aware that his death is what needs to happen for him to sit down at the wedding feast of the Lamb one day. He's thinking about his own wedding. And for Jesus to think about his own wedding means to think about his death. And we know that because of the way he does this miracle. It's a strange miracle. And the way he does the miracle confirms what's on his mind, his wedding and his death. And John wants to make sure we don't miss it. Look in verse 6. He talks about the jars and he wants to make sure we understand the significance of these jars. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Very specifically, that's included. These are jars for ceremonial washing. Jesus doesn't just turn any old water into wine. He takes the water that's used for cleansing and turns that into wine because he's thinking about his wedding and cleansing 
his friends so that he can eat with them and celebrate with them one day. It's amazing, isn't it? This is what John means when he says he reveals his glory. Now notice, he makes real wine, good stuff. And that's also just a really fascinating um, little eyewitness detail. The bridegroom is like, or the, the, the master of the banquet tastes the wine, because that would be his job. If you're going to bring out wine and serve it, I, get to, I got to taste it first, make sure it's good. And he tastes it and he's like, whoa, this is good stuff. Most everybody brings out the good wine first, and then after you've had too much to drink and you can't really distinguish good and bad wine, then you bring out the cheap stuff. But you've brought out the good stuff. In other words, Jesus makes good wine. I don't know if you've ever heard anybody give a sermon and say, well, Jesus would never make wine. It must have been like slightly fermented grape juice. That's hogwash. Jesus made good wine. Good wine that impresses the professional party guy. Because that's what that guy is. That's what he does. And he's impressed, right? Well, how does the sign, how does the sign reveal Jesus' glory? Two things. It tells us who he is, and it tells us what he came to do. A couple points on this just as we wrap this up tonight. Jesus shows us here that he's the one who all the stories about feasting are pointing to. Jesus is the one who all the stories about feasting are pointing to. Remember what I said, so often Christianity is represented as kind of drudgery and not as great joy and a great wedding feast. And I think sometimes that's because we talk about the cross all the time. We don't talk enough about the resurrection and how the resurrection, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15, is the first fruits of what's coming. The first fruits, that's a really interesting language, right? It's still tying in there with physical creation and grapes and wine even potentially, right? Like the resurrected body of Jesus is just, is just the beginning of a picture into what life will be like in the new heavens and the new earth where all things are made right, when there's no more tears, no more crying. You remember that passage we read is the call to worship, Isaiah 25, 6. On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine. That means good wine, strong wine, the best of meats, the finest of wines, right? And this passage goes on to say in Isaiah 25 about wiping away every tear. Maybe you know that passage in Revelation, in the book of Revelation, that God will one day wipe away every tear. But did you know that that passage is just verses away from this passage about a great feast with the best wine and the best food. So if you just think of the, the future for Christians as your tears being wiped away, and you don't think about the feast, you're only imagining half of the good stuff that's coming. Right? He is, he is the true master of the banquet. 
who is inviting us to a great party. But to get to that day, he has to go through his hour. Because the only way you and I get to eat this feast is if Jesus goes to the cross and brings the real cleansing, the cleansing that ceremonial water jars could only point at, but could never affect. The book of Hebrews says this, that all of the sacrificial system, all of that stuff, all the ceremonial washings in the Old Testament didn't work. And built into the, all of those rituals is the point that these don't work. And Hebrews says, the reason you know that that's built into all of those ceremonies is you have to do them over and over and over and over again. And that shows you that they're not a solution. They're pointing to a solution. And there's this amazing passage in Zechariah where it says that this, um, this one Yeshua, which is Jesus, basically the Hebrew version, um, that he, what he will do will cleanse the land of its sin in a single day. That what all of the animal sacrifices, all the ceremonial washings couldn't do for thousands of years, what Jesus does will cleanse the land of its sin in a single day. To get to that day, feasting with his friends, he has to go through his hour. And from the very beginning of his ministry, this is the beginning of his public ministry, he knew who he was, he knew what he came to do, he knew what it was going to require. And the astonishing thing is, he did it anyway. And I think it gets more astonishing when you remember that he lived with these disciples for three years. And they kept frustrating him. They kept not getting it. Like even right at the very end, they're like, hey, who's the greatest, me or my brother? <laughs> they like, And he still dies for them. So I don't know, you know, where you're at. Maybe you wonder, you know, did Jesus really, like, did he just end up kind of getting tricked and goes to the cross? No, Jesus intentionally, from the very beginning of his public ministry, he knows where he's heading. He knows who he's going to die for. He knows what knuckleheads they are. And he does it anyway. Even over their objections. Even when one of his best friends says, Jesus, you will not have to go to Jerusalem and die. He says, get behind me, Satan. I have to go to Jerusalem and die. To eat the wedding feast with my friends requires me to go through this hour. Tim Keller has this great line when he talks about Jesus here and what's going on. He says, Jesus is sitting in the midst of all of this festal joy sipping the coming sorrow so that we can sit in all of this sorrow and brokenness sipping the coming joy. Say that again. Jesus here in the midst of this festal joy at this wedding is sipping the coming sorrow so that you and I sitting in the sorrow and the brokenness and the how long and why is it like this we can sip the coming joy because we know that it's secured because Jesus did endure his hour. He did endure his hour. 
Therefore, what he promises to bring, this festal joy, it's coming. It's not just pie in the sky. It's secured. It's reality. The word hope in the Bible does not mean vague optimism. It means something that is absolutely secure because of what Jesus did. And when you're in the midst of sorrow, in the midst of the brokenness, sip the coming joy. Taste it. Ask the Lord to stir your heart. Because that's who he is. That's what he came to do. And he did it. He did it. He did everything required for us to enter into this joy. Let me pray for us.